You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna bring Hi there, everybody. Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I have a really interesting conversation to have in front of you today. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking with Arthur Agajanian, who has a really interesting um, project about contemplation and, and mysticism and uh, and how it applies to art. And so we're going to be talking a lot about film and stuff today, but particularly focusing it on the contemplative tradition. And so, uh, Arthur, welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. I'm happy to be here with you. This is going to be fun. Oh, gosh. I am really looking forward to it. Arthur and I have been talking um, a little bit here and uh, uh, over the last few months, and really, I find a lot of really fascinating things about his work. And so I asked him to come on the show to kind of talk about it, and uh, I'm really excited for you to hear um, what he's all about. But Arthur, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us what, uh, what you do and uh, maybe what uh, the contemplative tradition is. Sure. Thanks uh, for the introduction, Danny. Uh, I am a contemplative writer. My background is in visual art, and I am also an educator. And uh, my website, imageandfaith.com, is an archive of all of my written works and my writing projects. So you can find a variety of different things there. And I, in addition to my spiritual practice, I also facilitate and lead a contemplative group twice a month on Saturdays in the online meditation chapel. Uh, let's see, my writing is focused on art and theology. I also have a Facebook group with the same name as my meditation chapel group, which is Contemplatives and Conversation. There's information about Contemplatives and Conversation on my website. My interest is in interpreting Christian theology in a way that's applicable to daily life. So that is what drives what I do in the meditation chapel, and that is what underlies all of my writing. In my writing, I'm seeking to ground spiritual principles in concrete works of art, and in my contemplatives and conversation group, we explore a different spiritual theme every couple of months. Themes like faith, prayer, justice, truth, the cross. And we unpack these themes to understand how they play out in our lives as contemplatives. I, so as someone who's kind of ignorant of this let's just assume i know nothing um when i think of contemplation and the and contemplative practice i think of something like a labyrinth walk or something along those lines uh can you explain a little bit about what exactly the the contemplative tradition is and, and where it emerges from um maybe 
some connections to sort of Eastern um, theology and whatnot? Sure. The word contemplation comes from the Latin word contemplatio, which is a way of conveying this idea that one purifies one's heart to perceive God in continually deepening ways. The contemplative way of being a Christian is a focus on moving into a deeper love, fellowship, and union with God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And the contemplative Christian way is grounded in specific spiritual practices, such as, for example, the prayerful and slow reading of Scripture, something called Lexio Divina, which is one of my daily practices, meditative prayer, which takes the form for me specifically of something called centering prayer, taking time every day for silence and solitude, and in general, an overall inward attentiveness to God's presence through the course of the day. And the contemplative way is often associated with interior prayer, especially inspired by Jesus's teaching, the famous quote from Matthew 6, 6, but whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's a real touchstone for interior prayer practiced in the contemplative mode and inspired by the mystics. Uh, the Jesus prayer is another um, form of interior prayer that uh, many of your listeners may be familiar with, and that also is designed to lead us into contemplation. These are all methods for bringing about what one might call the prayer of the heart, which is also that unceasing prayer that the Apostle Paul advocated, the ideal being that you're continuously in prayer through the course of all of your everyday activities. It's not just an isolated period of time that you set aside uh, to sit on the cushion or however you do that, however you do your prayer and spend a prescribed period of time in prayer and then get up and then move about your day in an ordinary mind. You're trying to nurture uh, a way of being and essentially in a literal way, actually rewiring yourself, rewiring the brain and, and, and the body to be more perceptive of those silent moments of God that appear around us all the time uh, in everything in the created world. So it's really this uh, focus on the inner dimension of our relationship with God characterized by mystery. And, and mystery is the thing that is most... Uh, you could say alluring, in fact, to the contemplative, uh, where it's something that might signify unknown danger to somebody else, even other types of Christians, who, by the way, uh, are sometimes fearful of contemplative Christianity yeah. because of that mysterious aspect. Yeah. Uh, it, it's something actually that, for me personally, gives me great joy entering into the mystery and the unknown and embracing that and and finding that uh, transforming union that occurs uh, in the inner dimension that can only occur in the silent um, presence of God. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, you know, I don't, I mean, I think 
I probably have some more conservative listeners. I actually have quite a variety, uh, ideological variety of, of listeners um, that might be kind of, this sounds very Eastern to me. I don't know that I can get with this. The, it's maybe it rhymes a bit with what they might call spiritual formation, um, something along those lines. Am I right about that? In what sense? Well, that the idea that you're just sort of, you mentioned the term rewiring your brain. You're just sort right. of like intentionally um, forming your desires and aiming your desires and your thoughts um, on in an intentional way. And I think a lot of Absolutely. people will call this sort of like a, a spiritual formation class. And, um, and I think there'll be elements, I think if you no matter how conservative you are theologically, uh, if you've taken a spiritual formation class, there's probably some elements of contemplation that are in that, right? And so if anybody's afraid of this, they probably shouldn't be, is what I'm trying to get at. Very true. Yeah, when you when you mentioned spiritual formation, I was thinking in terms of the the long haul, mm-hmm. uh, that, that constant work of spiritual maturation um, that you're propelled on uh, once you've seen how the contemplative dimension factors into every aspect of life. You're continuously uh, moving forward. It's an onward seeking journey that also embraces uh, that idea of movement and never, never staying in one place, never uh, avoiding settling in one place and ossifying in the context of a belief system. Yeah. yeah. That's how I think about spiritual formation as opposed to, you know, a, a distinct um, uh, phase. Right. I um, come from a Wesleyan um, Protestant background and in my particularly Nazarene tradition, the, the idea of sanctification is a huge uh, term. And I think I was always kind of mistaught when I was a kid as a a moment like salvation, you prayed for forgiveness and you're saved. And then there's a moment at the altar when you are sanctified. And I think right. in, in subsequent years, people have revisited that and kind of seen it more what you're describing as this ongoing process of, of perfection that you'll never achieve, of course, right? right. But, uh, there's an idea of uh, what Matthew Arnold would call becoming uh, in tune with culture, right? It's the the act of perfection and so, uh, or of, of striving for perfection at least. And so I think that this is a, um, kind of a, a way for people who aren't from this, your end of the, the theological spectrum to maybe sort of a, connect to a little bit. Yeah, the idea is salvation is not, a one-time event mm-hmm. and uh, the notion of seeking is that not that you're looking for something desperately striving to find some sort of golden ring but that you are continuously in the process of discovery and you're and you're comfortable moving into mystery and opening yourself up allowing yourself to be deconstructed uh, and reoriented to the real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, looking to see what's there, not looking to find something that you hope to find. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, um, one thing I wanted to kind of uh, talk a little bit about, you mentioned deconstruction is the, the contribution that your tradition can make to religious discourse 
contemporary contemporary religious discourse. So much of online discourse I know is not the real world, but <laughs> it's a window into a, at least a piece of the a version of the real world. And um, so many of our religious debates are about they're either coded political debates about conservatism or liberalism, or you might get into kind of theological debates about Arminianism and Calvinism and whatnot. Um, this seems to be like going around all of our normal sort of discussions. And a big one recently has been deconstruction, right? And so I, I just want to know if you could talk a little bit about the contribution that this way that you advocate here, uh, that, that it makes to our political, our Dis religious discourse and i like calling it the way yeah <laughs> barred from Taoism. i think that's a, a great way to identify it um it's a generous term in addition to traditional teachings that we learn as christians or in any kind of religious learning it's important to realize that god is present to us revealed to us in the created world, in the ordinariness of daily activity. And our daily lives are in reality, not ordinary at all, because the mystical presence of God is contained in individual moments. It's this idea of the grace of the present moment. Mm. Henry Nouwen quote, I make a distinction between absolute truth and relative truth. Within relative truth, we have our particular life situation in the moment. And if we don't cling to that, if we don't take that for ultimate reality, we're able to treat our beliefs more lightly. And this is particularly helpful in the context of communication and debate or discussion when you're talking about people coming from different places. Mm. So in a sense, a way of avoiding getting caught up in fractious uh, issues, uh, divisive conversations, and to really listen to the other person is to hold those beliefs that you have lightly. We all have beliefs, but it's critical not to identify with them. Mm. Uh, and when we think about what the contemplative is, the contemplative is one who acknowledges God in all of creation and strives to develop the awareness of God's presence in daily living in the created world, as well as in the written word and in the sacraments. And when your focus is on seeing God everywhere, I think that makes it easier to keep some perspective on this relationship between uh, absolute and relative truth. We dip down into relative truth when we identify with certain positions and we think in terms of human identity in the transient way that we have it just as something that is ephemeral something that belongs to our life on the planet keeping that distance i think is benefited through the contemplative way mm. because when you approach 
life with a contemplative mindset, um, you become more aware of the trap of identity and the clinging or the attachment to beliefs, which are where problems arise because then the other is defined as that person or those individuals who are not part of your tribe. Right. And then we, of course, things devolve as we've seen uh, along these tribal lines. Yeah. So I, I think that that the contemplative way is uh, it's almost an insurance plan hmm. uh, because it's and then when you have daily practice, you're grounded continuously, and even if you're pulled away by emotions and 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 sensations and the monkey mind you have a port to come back to it becomes simply a matter of remembering mm -hmm. and once you do you can kind of snap back and and the more practiced you are in uh, the contemplative way through spiritual exercises through spending time in scripture and identifying the divine in even the mundane things, the more likely you are to keep yourself from getting stuck in the things that really don't matter in, in the bigger picture. Um, this really speaks strongly to me for a number of reasons, and I won't get into all of them, but I think you're right because the, the root cause of much of our sort of fractious discourse is because of people holding on too tightly to identities, right? And so people um, are very likely to choose what they're for based on what they perceive people they don't like or against, right? Uh, and and vice versa. Sure. <laughs> and so, like to me, holding on tightly to something is like a recipe for flailing around uh, through life uh, unintentionally just going from one thing to the next being led by your nose kind of uh, with like a ring in your nose being being pulled through life in that way whereas the this kind of rooted contemplative tradition that you're talking about gives you these kind of daily practices to pull you out of um, the 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 currents of life that we can be swept up in and 10 years go by and you don't even know where it went because you're just going about your day-to-day -day routine without stepping out of that routine. And I think that's essentially what's at heart in the in contemplative um, practices. Am I right? I think you're exactly right. Uh, and uh, it's not easy to do. It requires extreme discipline to maintain a practice, an embodied practice, yeah. where you are practicing a variety of exercises. Um, you have a way of living. You have uh, a certain simplicity set up in your life to reduce distractions. And you're putting your relationship with God front and center. Mm. It's not something that is just reserved for Sundays. Uh, and it's something that's lived. But we all get pulled back into the daily conflicts and the external stimulation, responsibilities, people asking for our time. 
So I found that in my own experience, having a disciplined approach, and I'm constantly struggling with this actually, uh, by no means is this something that I've mastered, but by saying this time of day is when I'm going to be doing this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then after lunch, I'm going to be doing this meditation, for example. And in the late afternoon, I'm going to do centering prayer. Uh, then I'm going to be spending some time reading uh, sacred um, writing. Or in my case, my writing also is, is part of my spiritual practice. I see it as an extension of that. Mm. We're constantly coming back. I mean, uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola had the examine, which uh, I've taken up myself, which is a reflection at the end of the night on your day, how it went, what choices you made, uh, and praying to God for guidance uh, and setting yourself a plan for how you're going to do better in that relationship, in your self-awareness, uh, how you're going to avoid the same traps that you are finding yourself continually falling in the next day. How are you going to correct where you went off the path? Mm. And Ignatius would do the examine continuously throughout the day, uh, not just once. And when we think back to, for example, the, the monastic, uh, the monastics or the periods in history when the uh, the monasteries had much more presence uh, in their relationship to ordinary society. There was a lot of discipline there. And of course, they had the benefit of being able to live in a way where they'd be undistracted mm -hmm. and they could concentrate all their attention on self-awareness and being with God. We don't have that luxury in the contemporary world. And when centering prayer was developed uh, by um, Basil Pennington, um, uh, and uh, Thomas Keating, the idea was to bring contemplative prayer to ordinary people who are living in the world and take it out of the idea of it being uh, something that only could be done in a monastery, practiced in a monastery. And one of the things I found really helpful in my own practice is that there's so much material out there that provides a guide for people living in the busy world to tap into their spiritual lives and ways to stay rooted in that, which is a really difficult part, right? The rootedness, because there's constantly, uh, there are constantly currents trying to uproot us. So that's where the discipline comes in. Um, yeah, that's exactly um, what I was getting at. I was going to ask you later on, but maybe this is a good moment to um, talk about this. You'd mentioned some of the practices um, Lexio Divina and, and, and centering prayer. I mean, is there a, a place where of resources that, that people could find, like what to do if they wanted to make this a more intentional thing? I I'm holding in my hand right now. Oh gosh. A few years ago, I, I met this, um, Benedictine, uh, monk, uh, uh, who's teaches at a 
neighboring college, a nearby college to us here at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, PA. And um, he gave me a copy of the Rule of St. Benedict. And and I very often will kind of look through this and it's very prescriptive about what to do in certain circumstances and what to do kind of on a, not necessarily on a day-to-day basis, but, um, but there is, you know, that element in there as well. So there are like, I know, templates and guidelines and books available. What, what are some, what's a place that someone might go to find a list of what to do if they're interested in pursuing this? Well, you can start on my website because I have, <laughs> I, I actually have that. a, I actually have a, I don't know if that was a setup or not. It was. But, uh, <laughs> I'm very okay. clumsy at it though. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I have a library there and uh, on it, you'll find recommended readings, classics that go back through the ages uh, as well as uh, contemporary and, and, uh, and modern mystics and books written by contemporary authors on the contemplative path and on Christian mysticism. And I'm updating that list, that library regularly. Mm -hmm. So that's one place that you could start. It also might help for anybody who's having a difficulty moving into this from the standpoint of Christianity. So Christianity is a wall for you that you have a hard time overcoming or people who have felt betrayed in some way by the church. Mm. Um, Looking at practices of mindfulness is, I think, a soft path uh, that eventually will, when you go to the theological um, implications of it, will take you right into mystical Christianity it could also go straight into, depending on you know which which road you follow, it could go straight into uh, Eastern religion and philosophy as well. But it's actually how I came back through contemporary writing on mindfulness and self-awareness. That was my initial interest, the experiential aspect of the spiritual life, which is not what I was getting or, or not what I was familiar with from the mainstream church experience I had had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, the same thing. And particularly from low church Protestantism that uh, that I come from in, in Nazarendom, uh, this is very skeptically received in many cases because it feels Eastern. That will be an mm-hmm. actual, that's an actual noun that someone will use at Eastern. And so it's a, um, uh, it is perhaps a, 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 a bit of a scary idea for for some people but it is finding its way into churches and i think people are are understanding that it is honestly just simply surveying the history of christianity it's an essential part of christianity from the beginning and all the way into the scriptures as you mentioned before and so uh people are i think becoming more and more comfortable with it and uh, i particularly have you know as i got older as I continue, hopefully, to get older <laughs> for the next X amount of years, I uh, have tried to become more intentional about how I spend whatever little time I have left. I mean, I've experienced deaths in my circle. 
sorry, thunder, uh, clapping behind me as I say that. A little, <laughs> little <Wow>. off-putting. <laughs> Perfect timing, God. Sounded um, like a drum. <laughs> yeah. Like a um, bass drum. Yeah. But I was, um, uh, you know, I've experienced these kinds of things. And so it's got me thinking about time and how I want to spend time and what I'm actually spending my time on. And so I, on a very simple level, I've started, I have a very kind of idiosyncratic version of a bullet journal that I've begun um, the last year before I met you. Um, and so having met you, I've realized, I think what I've been you know, grasping at flailing at is something along the lines of what you've been saying. And in this little journal for every month, I keep a little tracking system where am I praying every day? Am I writing every day? Am I reading? Um, if the skies per, uh, permit, am I able to see the stars? That's a thing I really love to do a star, look at the stars. And so, um, I have columns tracking these things. And so I'm able to see, gosh, I've been not doing so well emotionally lately. Well, look, I haven't written or prayed the last seven days or something like that. Right. And so it's, it's been a helpful way for me to kind of keep track of what I am spending my time on. I also keep track of everything I watch and read um, mm -hmm. on any given day in any given month. And so it, it's helping me kind of just be aware at least of where my attention is going and make changes as needed. Right. Um, and so that's one thing I've been doing. I happen to have a very big yard. I'm trying to figure out how to uh, make space in it. So I've planted little wildflower gardens and I have a pumpkin patch now. And uh, I'm thinking about making a, a labyrinth, a walking, a walking labyrinth out of an herb garden. Uh, no, that would be cool <laughs> to give myself something, some place to go in my yard uh, where I can intentionally do something. And so that might be a fall project here but uh yeah. but yeah so it is something that i'm very personally interested in and so i'm very happy that you're here to me to talk here to talk to me about this today um go, you're gonna say something go ahead uh well i was just thinking as you were talking that this is also all kind of what one would call developmentally appropriate when we get to a certain age i mean past middle age many of us start to reassess and look forward and think, okay, well, if I continue living the way I'm living, where is this going to go? Mm -hmm. You kind of project forward and think, okay, well, that's not what I want to happen. <laughs> uh, that's not where I want to be. Uh, I can kind of see where this is all going to go. Maybe it's time to reassess and reprioritize. And we then become encouraged to through meditation on this to slow down and start to strip away those things that really are unnecessary uh, and oftentimes just take up a tremendous amount of time and energy yeah. when we look at how we spend our time during the day it's extraordinary how much energy we we waste on things that really aren't very important. Um, they become priorities in the moment because we're emotionally driven or because we're caught up in the stream of activity and, and uh, uh, societal energy and uh, the routines and the conditioning we've gotten trapped in. But if we stand outside of what we're doing and assess and think about what's really important, we'll often find that there's a lot of uh, reorganizing that needs to take place. Now, once we've identified that, we need to then find practical ways to spend time in silence, to reflect, to look at where we are on the spiritual path, 
to draw to us those things that are going to feed us and nurture us spiritually. And then we have to exercise those through discipline and we have to be persistent and consistent. And even on days that I find I'm not in the mood to do something that I know is going to bring me uh, spiritual nurture, I'll do it anyway uh, out of uh, a commitment, a sense of commitment. And that's what we have to do. That's the benefit of creating habits for ourselves that are healthy is that we won't be guided so much by mood. We'll do things in a regimented way. And that kind of gets a bad rap in our society, this idea of having kind of a regimented um, routine way of doing certain things for ourselves. But it's necessary. Otherwise, we will degenerate um, spiritually and uh, we won't find happiness or fulfillment regardless of of what temporary uh, desires we seem to be uh, fulfilling. Yeah. I'm going to very awkwardly wedge in a transition here. Um, (laughs) So just bear with me. This is going to be clunky. I wanted to get to the main idea of what I wanted to talk to you today about is art. And you you mix your contemplative way with an interest in art and, and of all of all of all kinds and so i wanted to talk a little bit about art and particularly movies i think that's one thing i can kind of keep up with you about and uh and and while you're talking there i'm thinking of um tarkovsky um i think i often think of his movies as acts of discipline if you like to sit there away mm. from your phone for upwards of three hours look at long shots of beautiful you know of of enigmatic images of horses doing weird things <laughs> rain where it shouldn't be raining and all the things that happen in a Tarkovsky film uh, it has a very similar kind of like uh, meditative effect um, and it particularly ties into the subject matter of his great film stalker which the premise of is getting people to think about um, what they actually desire. And, and the, the idea in that movie is that we often don't even know what it is we want. Right. And so we can often make plans. Like I want this to be my life, but in reality, what you actually do with your time is what you really wanted, (laughs) You you know? And so I think that that's one of the terrifying implications of that movie. I can have all the high minded ideas about what it is I want out of my life, but if what I do every day is look at my phone and scroll or watch the same series on Netflix all the time, then that is really what I wanted, despite what I say about myself. Right. And so I think, well, we, yeah, we put our attention on the things that are most important to us. Yes. Right. So you can kind of assess uh, those things that are of the most value to you by looking at, you know, clocking the time yeah. and, the, and, and measuring the energy that you put into that thing, uh, our attention is a extremely valuable um, uh, commodity. Yeah, and yeah. and and we often waste waste our attention on things that uh, uh, momentarily uh, excite us, yeah. but which have no lasting value. And, in the and case, I think go ahead. We we recognize that as we get older, right? Yeah, Going sure. back to what you were saying before, uh, that that seems to be something that occurs with different people at different points in their lives. It can happen with younger people too, but I think it is something that's part of the 
the, their journey of life from the con, uh, the chronological uh, perspective. That you know, past middle age, you start to uh, look at things uh, in terms of how am I spending my time and where is my energy going and is this what I want? Yeah, absolutely right. And you, it isn't just necessarily shiny things that make us pleasure or give us pleasure. We can often delude ourselves into thinking if I'm rage tweeting all day, I'm actually doing something just right. Uh, and and <laughs> but you don't even realize that you spent your day rage tweeting and it hasn't really been justice because you haven't really reflected on that. And so, yeah, I actually, I totally agree with all that. So let me, you know, complete my awkward transition into uh, the subject of art and, and just in general, I, I want particularly, we're going to work towards this idea of, of liminal space of, of kind of space at the margins um, in life and art in general. But um, just before we get there, let's talk about what art, how it, uh, provides material fodder for uh, contemplative ways. Sure. When we're talking about images in relation to religious practice or the spiritual life, there are certain key points that emerge. Uh, the idea of beauty being one of them and the fact that beauty excites wonder and spiritual longing in us so it's a place where we can begin to consider god's presence in the world i was talking before about finding god in the everyday and the unceasing prayer which is a way of attuning ourselves to god's work in the created order um, all religions contain some degree uh, of practice of religious aesthetics. So with Hindu aesthetics, for example, we've got meditation, objects of devotion, various media of communication, um, representations of the sacred. Uh, Zen Buddhism uh, contains the aesthetics of asymmetry, simplicity, austerity, naturalness, uh, quietness, uh, and a lot of these are both aesthetic and religious categories. Uh, and appreciation of beauty means that we're affirming also the integrity of the world. Mm. We're concerned with the built environment, the role of arts and religion in society, uh, even in science, when you think about beauty as a guiding principle in the working of the cosmos. So a concern with beauty is one way that religions can recover inspiration and joy and uh, the arts are a way of communicating that to the world mm. recreation uh, of images uh, following the creative aspect of god uh, links artistic imagination and religious faith and the power of the imagination enables us to perceive something of the transcendent, mm. dealing with and transforming reality, um, finding glimpses of ultimate reality. Because when we're talking about communing with the sacred through art, we're moving through a certain form that concretizes, you could say, um, the idea of transformation, transformation of our daily experiences of suffering and fragmentation. And 
we bring a contemplative outlook to the artwork when we're open to it and we allow it to speak to us and we allow ourselves to get lost in it. And because art also is a place, visual art is a place where language is in a sense jettisoned. Many artists won't talk about their work or can't really speak about their work, for example, and, and that's left up to those people who can interpret it um, in text, a critic or an art historian. Uh, but art is really significant in that it opens us to the transcendent and invites us to let go of our preconceived ideas and our way of thinking about the world. But of course, this also requires on the part of the viewer, the willingness to engage. Mm. There's a great Zen saying that I always come back to in different contexts that goes, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. You can't enlighten a closed mind. So you have to have a generous uh, attitude when you come to artwork. And through it, you will be able to connect with things that we don't have in our ordinary experience. Uh, what viewers absorb and process also contributes to the social, intellectual, and perceptual construction of reality. So if we are able to connect with the transcendent through um, uh, created works of art, we can gain a deeper insight into the nature of our own reality and what and the significance of the created order. Uh, the larger created order made by uh, made by God that we're participating in. It's it's working with that created created order and refashioning it in a way that's particular to our lives and our perspective as um, members of the body of Christ. And I think I mean I think I've probably been unconsciously or at least unofficially adopting contemplative practices over the last year or so for me um, personally um, accidentally I met you sort of maybe this is the whole thing about when the student is ready the teacher appears. <laughs> but, and then I sort of meet you in the middle of this but um, I, during that time I have adopted a much more I would say as you said generous attitude toward art I, I much less interested in I, I have no interest in giving movies star ratings or anything like that and i have much less interest in in finding problems in in movies and and, and music and that sort of thing um than i am just finding what's interesting about them and what um where it sort of takes me about the human experience at a given moment right and so the things i've been writing lately have been not at all evaluative of art. They've been much more, I guess you would just call them old school art appreciation essays where, you know, here's why you should watch this movie because it's interesting if you're concerned about this problem. And and so I, um, I, I really do feel the same way about art. It, it, it's an occasion to think, right? I, I, that's how I more and more want to approach art in, in my own life and particularly movies. That's a, a special love of mine. And uh, I thought we could kind of focus our conversation a little bit about a, an aspect of films that is um, 
consistent that is consistent excuse me with contemplative practice here um and that is the idea of the liminal space which is right a space at the limits of a thing right and so i think i privately somewhere along the line we've talked about how much i love the cheesy um nicole kidman amc um <laughs> thing that happens right. before every movie when I go to the movies. I remember. And, uh, and, and I, I find what she's describing is you're entering into a space outside of reality that enriches your reality, right? That's what she's describing in that that thing. And I've st- I'm a sucker for that thing. I love it. I know that it's easy to make fun of, um, but it, but I think that maybe just because I I appreciate going to the movies in a darkened cinema, um, doing my own version of communion with popcorn <laughs> and nachos and whatever it I have, whatever it is I have um, while I watch a movie and think about the world through it. And so not just being entertained, but transformed, um, as she says in that. Uh, and so. So like the liminal spaces is important. And and I want to go back to Tarkovsky. I've done a, a series of episodes on this show with C. Derek Varn about various Tarkovsky films. I think we've done like four of them at this point. And so um, the one that I want to kind of come back to is Stalker. Stalker is essentially about a liminal space. There is this um, place called the zone outside of the community that a stalker, a guide, takes people into to confront the the possibility of having their deepest wish granted. And so it is a place outside of their reality, on the limits of their, their reality. It's about going to a liminal space where truth is possible. Um, and then I would also argue that the Tarkovsky film itself is a liminal space we can enter into to think about these um, ideas ourselves. I've never seen that in a theater but that would be an ideal movie to go into a darkened theater to watch and, and just sort of be separate from the flow of our life. And so that's how I think about liminality when it comes to movies. And I'll kind of let you riff on that now. Sure. Liminality, it's uh, liminality points to that state of being. Be, you could say betwixt and between yeah. where the old world has been left behind, but you haven't yet arrived at what is to come. So you're in this space of, we mentioned deconstruction earlier, yeah. uh, also disorientation. And it, it's a, it's a common device that uh, the, the cinema uses. And, and some of our, our greatest filmmakers are, are known for their effective use of liminality, like Tarkovsky, who's one of my absolute favorites. And I think that in thinking about Stalker and Tarkovsky's work more broadly, I think that his use of liminality is not something that's isolated to a specific transformative moment in a film, but I feel it to be something that's almost attenuated over the entire temporal um, space of the film, which is to say that there's a continual movement. There's a continual uh, transformative process that's happening on multiple registers. There's the narrative and what it means thematically, like what you just described with stalker but there's also the sense of time as it unfolds cinematically 
experientially. Um, there's the use of sound um, and music in ways that suggest change and transformation and the otherworldly. And I, I think that liminal approach, that redefinition of cinematic space and time is what lends Tarkovsky's films their dreamlike quality and makes them so hypnotic. Mm. Because when I watch a Tarkovsky film, I feel like the time of the ordinary linear clock time that I'm that we're all so aware of regularly is almost enveloped by when I release myself to the film, enveloped by his sense of time. Right. And that's, I think, how I can sit through a very long um, series of um, episodes and sequences where not much is happening in terms of action because your mind is slowed down and your attention is brought to a finer point where, for example, think about the sort of, um, what would you call it, stereotypical um, or signature Tarkovsky uh, shot, the, um, the pan or the tilt across a section of the landscape, mm -hmm. say moving across a creek uh, with its multiple layers of leaves floating on top and stones underneath and, and this current moving along and you're looking at it in close up uh, in this kind of abstracted way. Uh, it, it's focusing on moments, for example, in the landscape that point to larger cosmic realities and forces and elements things that go beyond the film frame. They, they point to larger forces that are influential and function as undercurrents to the events that are unfolding and which have that really fascinating thing. And this is something particular to film. You're brought into that. You're experiencing that as you're watching the film, you're not watching uh, an explanation of the, say, protraction of time uh, from the point of view of the character. You're experiencing it, too. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. And there's so many moments in those movies where that kind of thing happens. Right. And, um, yeah, I think that it's a, uh, a fascinating, I mean, he's like a premier example to begin a discussion about liminality in film itself. But... Uh, the idea of liminality in general is also interesting to consider here. I happen to be, I'm recording in my office at uh, Mount Aloysius College in P Pennsylvania, and I happen to be right under a chapel uh, <laughs> on campus. Like, And so um, very often uh, I'll go up there into the chapel and just sit and, and contemplate, right? And so that is a space that is part of campus, but it is also removed from campus and so it's actually and once i enter that door there's a, a quietness in that room there's the colors and the smells of 
however the materials have decayed over the hundred years that it's been there. Uh, like all of that comes together uh, to create a, a rather a, a world that's alien from what's just outside those doors. And so um, it is a space like between the campus and wherever, <laughs> whatever it's beyond. And so that is a, a place that then is useful for contemplation and for prayer in, in my case. And so, yeah, it's a very lovely resource we have. It's a beautiful looking place, first of all, with lots of great art built into it. Um, so it has that aspect of it as well. But just the the nature of the space being somewhat separate is also um, powerful. And so I actually, when I think about, and I think we've discussed this before, liminality, just because I went to humanities grad school, <laughs> Uh, one thing you learn in humanities grad school is uh, the uh, anthropologist Victor Turner and his use of the term um, liminality. L right. The liminal for him, he's talking about a very specific tribe in Africa where they send their youth. It's a rite of passage. They send their youth out into the wilderness to accomplish a certain task, sink or swim, live or die. And when they come back, they are then a full member of the tribe. Um, and so for, for him, the liminal space outside the village was a space of kind of transformation, a, a place of um, maturation. And that's, um, that's what he used. That's the term he used to describe that process. And so I really do think it's the same thing that what we're talking about with watching a movie and, and allowing yourself to be matured through it. Yeah, and then in terms of the, the spiritual journey, the mystical approach of the, the mystical embrace of mystery and the unknown and the journeying through that is one way, one of the results of that is that you are frequently kept off balance. Mm. And I was also thinking about how that's something, being off balance, being okay with ambiguity, mm. these are things that some people take to more easily than others. So there is that. Uh, some people are very uncomfortable with the types of things that come with liminality. Uh, because they they want to they're always grasping for some sort of a certainty and um, it, it's through spiritual maturity that that grasping is released but then there are others of us who are very content with ambiguity um, and paradox and things of that nature I always have been because I've always found that exciting, the, the, the fact that there is more that lies outside there that can be explored. Uh, that is also really, that's a valuable trait for an artist or any creative person to have. Mm -hmm. And when I was in art school and uh, I was uh, practicing and exhibiting artist, that was something that was an MO in my work. I mean, that was just something that I was taught and uh, assumed was part of the process that you release control at a certain point. Otherwise, you end up with something really bad in terms of what you produce. We have contemplative moments. This is just a reminder to me that we have contemplative moments all the time, but we don't necessarily identify them or name them. And if we talk about a contemplative Christianity, 
which is simply a Christianity that values the experiential uh, and looks for God everywhere mm -hmm. and is open to the unknown, the types of things that we've been discussing. We have those experiences, if, but if, if, if you take it and if you think of it as a denomination or as some sort of a specific form, then it might seem alien, yeah. especially if you're, whether you're a practicing Christian of another kind or you have a different religious background or you're not religious. Uh, but to recognize that we all have the contemplative experience is something that we all have on a regular basis, more frequently maybe than many of us realize, is another way into it to say to ourselves, that was meaningful. That experience, that contemplative experience was meaningful. How do I open that up? How do I expand that? How do I get more of that? Yeah. And then you can lead yourself through a series of questions about what brought that about. What was going on mentally, physically? Where was I? Uh, what were the conditions that allowed me to let go? Um, I'd love to do that all day long, right? <laughs> that, that makes the contemplative way, I think, immediately appealing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I don't know how to say it, but th it, this is not meant to be a, a dig or a, a statement that creedal approaches to religion are wrong. Um, but that is a potential weakness in being a purely creedal uh, Christian, right? It, it, it's so you kind of can potentially, I'm not saying it's a necessity, but, um, without, with, with a little thoughtlessness, you can potentially, uh, find yourself cut off from these very kind of, um, beautiful moments and these beautiful encounters with what is divine, uh, by, by sticking, and in some cases. Yeah. yeah and in, I think also that in some cases, uh, people who box things that way also see that letting go, uh, as dangerous. Yeah not just in what they might say about centering prayer, but that, for example, your state of mind, your state of being that you just described, um, sitting in the back of the church and listening to the music is a giving up of responsibility or an extreme view would be that you're making yourself open and susceptible to evil influences. Yes. <laughs> uh, and many Christians would say the evil influences of the secular world, right? Yes, yes. So there, there, I, I think that the, the fear tied in with that la loss of control is what causes people to cling to a literal interpretation of the Bible because it seems to explain everything. Uh, that belief system provide safety and explanation and gives people uh, the assurance that they're going to be okay. They're doing the right thing. You know, yeah. you know, tell me what to do because uh, it's too much work to figure it out on my own or it's too risky. Yeah. A lack yeah. of trust. Yeah. Right. And that's a lack of trust in God yeah. to allow God to work on us in whatever way God deems appropriate. One of the, the uh, primary principle in centering prayer is that you are sitting down with the intention of allowing God to fill you up. You're letting yourself go and you're giving yourself over to God. So regardless of how that session of centering prayer goes, um, you've done good by your very intentionality. 
and whatever happens happens and you accept that as what needed to happen whether you had the monkey mind constant racing thoughts or whether you were in this blissful openness um you did your you did what you needed to do you gave yourself over to god and you put time aside to let god speak to you and um that's something that when you make it a daily practice you are again through intentionality you are presenting yourself uh for god's work yeah and as going back to what you were talking about with opening your mind to evil influences as a person who's always been a lifelong fan of horror this is something i've heard over many many times in my life right um, sure but i will say that's one thing that the horror film offers in spades is liminality right i mean the whole thing is a, a liminal experience um you're at, you're exiting the normal and so there is a, a way in which i think you can make a really good case that there is a real spiritual work possibly can be done by experiencing a horror film and so yeah i think that um and it goes right along with this idea of liminality and stepping out of stepping into um these mysterious places where i would say that yeah. though in the case of of the horror film I see that as an extreme example, a kind of Absolutely. hitting you over the head with a hammer because more subtle uh, mechanisms aren't doing the the trick, <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so you know, so it's a, it's a, it's like um, a cartoon version of liminality in the sense of uh, it's 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 very it's it's loud, it's over the top, it's in your face. Hey, pay attention to this. You're not picking up the more subtle vibrations that that. Uh, are being sent to you mm. about transformation and change and letting yourself go. Uh, well, that's the inevitable. Uh, this is how life unfolds. Mm -hmm. Life is, uh, we live in, in mystery. And, uh, so he here you go. We're gonna, we're gonna give it to you in this package and, uh, force this, this view on you in, in the context of entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can I can get with that. And there are definitely, you know, horror fans who have very firm, very dogmatic, creedal, you might say, expectations of what they want to see happen in this film in a very ritualistic way. Well, uh, our minds will do that no matter what, right? Yes. We're still going to make a category out of it, still going to put it in a box, still going to try to, you know, understand it and, 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 and tame it, no matter how much the situation or the 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 um the experience calls for a letting go and uh, a giving over uh, our, our minds and our egos are extremely um uh stubborn and and strong-willed mm -hmm. oh absolutely well i we're nearing the end of our time here and so i want to uh, give you a chance maybe to say some last words but i just want to kind of throw something out there last night i had the opportunity to go out with my family and see um the a24 film everything everywhere all at once, which I had missed in its first run in the theater and they have repackaged it. I think this is a, 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 a low week in box office. <laughs> there's no, there's no Thor movie out this week. Uh, and so this was the a week that there was some open screens for things like this to revisit the theater. So I went and saw it last night and there is a, uh, a really interesting movie right there about, about the possibilities of liminality. It's a multiverse kind of narrative and the main character sort of is on a, a kind of quest, you can say. And she is empowered by finding ways to contact other versions of herself in these other universes, which are all like 
variations of her timeline in in in, in this world the uh, uh every little decision a person makes fractures into various timelines right and so there's endless versions of us based on what we might have done and what we did do uh and so her the the multiverse is populated with various versions of her and and when she's able to get in contact with these other versions of her she's empowered by what they can do that she cannot so she learns kung fu uh <laughs> when it's useful and whatnot uh she can sing when it's useful when it's when whatnot and so um it, because she's able to kind of exit her reality and it's it's a version of liminality she's entering into just briefly um in she's in touch with some other dimension um just to kind of become empowered by it and so it's a really beautiful movie by the way wild and weird it's an a24 film you would expect all of this i suppose but uh but also very kind of heartwarming and gorgeous like sentimentality i would say and uh i loved it and i think as we're talking it's because of its really interesting use of liminality as a plot device in, in that movie. And so uh, that's just a little recommendation uh, for everybody listening out there. If you haven't seen that yet, it's great. Um, Arthur, what uh, do you want to, anything else you wanted to add that I haven't given you a chance to get to yet? Not particularly, Danny. I, I think we covered uh, a wide swath of um, <laughs> material yeah. um, and, uh, as always, it was uh, enjoyable, and the things we touched on, of course, we could go on and on yeah. for oh, hours about. Absolutely. Uh, I, mean, so I don't want to do that. <laughs> I know you have a time limit. So. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, um, multiverse, yeah. <laughs> well, the website where you can find all of this stuff is imageandfaith.com. Um, and the and is spelled out and I will put a link to this in the course, des- course the show description of, of in the uh, podcast listener that you're uh, uh, using and you can also find Arthur on Twitter at Art Agajanian it's A-G-H-A-J-A-N-I-A-N and I will also put a link to that on Twitter if someone wants to reach out and follow what you do I think it's really fascinating what you do and um, I really I'm happy to be a part of the uh, the Facebook group now, and hopefully, I, actually, it's ironic. One of my contemplative practices has been to spend less time on Facebook, <laughs> and so so I haven't been very active on there. Well, you can be just you know be selective. That's all. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, but uh, I really am happy to know you, and this has been a great conversation. And so, for Arthur Agajanian, my name is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Thanks, Danny.